0: Welcome to the American Compass podcast. I'm Oren Cass, Executive Director at American Compass, and this is Policy in Brief, which, as our loyal listeners know by heart, is a brief discussion of a policy issue. I'm joined, as usual, by our Policy Director, Chris Griswold. Chris, how are you today? I'm great, Oren. How are you? I'm doing well. As your canned coffee beverage got you refreshed and ready to go? And the, the caffeine is hitting nicely, yes, yeah. Well, we are excited to be here. We're excited to talk about local content requirements. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. probably good to start by defining what a local content requirement is, just so we're all on the same page. Local content requirement is a rule that requires that a certain percentage of a given good be made in a given area, right? So that can be defined by labor, by the intermediate goods that you use to make it. Um, but the intent is to ensure that at least a certain amount of, of an end good is made in in this case in the United States. So that's what we mean when we talk about local content requirements. Um, and the policy idea that's on the table today is uh, authori- Congress authorizing the D- Department of Commerce and Department of Defense to specify goods that are critical to national security or the domestic industrial base and apply a local content requirement to them. That's That's what we're talking about.
0: And so we're basically saying is if you're talking about whether it's a a military technology, whether it is uh, all sorts of other manufactured products that are are critical to the health of the industrial economy, some percentage, let's say 50 percent. Of yeah. the content in that product has to itself be made in the United States,
1: right? And again, you can you know, specify what "made in the United States" means. People will talk in terms of value added, for example, or the value of the labor that goes into it, being American workers, and so on, where you get the intermediate goods. But yeah, you're right.
0: All right, so let's start with the why. What is what is the problem that we solve with such requirements?
1: Well, big picture, and and you know our our loyal listeners will know we talk about this a lot. Um, it's, a, it's a story about globalization and de-industrialization. Um, for a number of decades, as, as you know, uh, American policymakers have prioritized the idea that we should make everything where it is cheapest to make it. Uh, and the result has been the offshoring of our productive capacity, a decline in investment in the American uh, industrial base. And all of the attendant consequences, negative consequences that follow from that, from the fragility of our supply chains that the pandemic has revealed to hollowed out communities, both urban and rural, that have depended on industrial uh, uh, work, um, to the degradation of our industrial commons, that shared base of knowledge, that that know-how um, that we lose if we stop doing things in the United States, and ultimately a loss of control. The more production happens overseas, say in China, for example, the more control China has over our destiny, um, the more control China has over our national security, uh, the more vulnerable we are to uh, price shocks and and other events uh, outside of our control elsewhere, elsewhere in the world. And that's the big picture story in view. And one piece of that is about demand. What do you do when demand for domestic production Declines, and this is a straightforward answer to that question. Well, you can require you can require it,
0: right? And I think I, I think the supply chain story is especially important here because one of the striking phenomena of, of globalization that economists seem to have totally ignored and then suddenly remembered at a, at a very inopportune time is that you know supply chains bring with them just extraordinary spillovers or or externalities and and connections I, uh, <laughs> as the term supply chain suggests and and that in stage 1 to your point we said well it doesn't matter where something is made we just want the cheapest possible thing and you saw first in you know the cheapest components but then ultimately the initial supply chains move overseas and then when you ask, well, why can't we bring those things back, the economists with the, the same intelligent look they had on their face when they <laughs> said it was fine for it all to leave, right. now very wisely say, well, of course it can't come back. The supply chain is entrenched somewhere else. And it, you know, it sort of makes you want to just slam your head on the table, but it-, it
1: Which was probably made in China.
0: <laughs> that, that's right. <laughs> and And fortunately, less sturdy than it would be otherwise- um, But it, it, it. In a sense, the economists are correct. Entrenched supply chains form for a reason and are very difficult to disrupt. And I think you know a really great concrete example of this that's always stuck with me is uh, it was a while ago now. Apple tried to move MacBook production to Texas, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's a wonderful New York Times story about the process and the experience and why it failed. And it didn't fail because labor was too expensive here. You know, it didn't fail because we didn't have engineers. It failed because they couldn't get screws. The little tiny screws, the, yeah. <laughs> the little tiny, that's right. Not the screws you get, but there are very yeah. sort of specialty kinds of screws you need to produce um, the, the sorts of modern electronics that we all have come to rely on. And because we'd allowed all the Asian, all, all the production to move to mm-hmm. these Asian supply mm-hmm. chains, the United States had totally lost the know-how and, and even just the capacity to quickly supply the types of screws that you need. And no, as a result, yeah. you yeah. couldn't make the laptop here.
1: Well, no, that's right. And, and I think the important point there is you would think, well, why can't you just start making a couple of tiny screws? Well, it doesn't work that way. If you lose an entire ecosystem of like, a tool and die landscape, you can't just dial that back up whenever you want. You need the landscape. Um, and the a far more disturbing example of this. You, you you know here at the American Compass podcast we value cultural exchange. So here's a story that's painful to to my people. Um, Ronzoni, the pasta maker, recently announced it will stop manufacturing pastina, which is the little star shaped pasta that you know in the, the you know soup your Italian mom makes you when you're sick. And the re- the reason is this same exact problem. Um, our colleague and friend Duncan braid pointed this out to me and I was deeply distraught as an Italian american they can't make pasta anymore this deeply beloved good uh, because they, of the of the of the tool and die ecosystem is is too hollowed out um so from macbooks to to your mom's you know italian penicillin as they call it um you know there're plenty of examples of this that uh you know we could sp- we could spend an hour just on the the individual cases of you know, p- pointing out how this works, but
0: point taken. Aron. I'm I'm a matzo ball soup man myself, <laughs> but I will I will take your word on the on the tiny star shaped pasta. The 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 other piece of this I think is important to recognize is that all of this also connects to the changes in, in the way that we manufacture and the mm. the just in time um, model and and the reliance that efficient manufacturing has on. Um, extremely flexible and readily available scale up, scale down production, which to a large extent comes down to scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this comes back to the demand point that that you raised. You know, it, It's not just that it's technically difficult and requires an entire ecosystem to make a screw. It's also that it makes no sense to set up a factory to make screws for just one MacBook production yes. line. And even if you did, what would you do when Apple decided it needed a different screw? It's 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 not a viable business. What makes sense is to be making those screws in Shenzhen where mm-hmm. there are a hundred different companies constantly asking for a full range of screws. And so one thing that happens is whereas, again, you could envision a steady state of robust, efficient, low-cost manufacturing in the United States – There's no way to get from here to there. No one Mm -hmm. has essentially a chicken and the egg problem. Yeah, you can't start doing the laptops if you don't have the screws, and you can't start making the screws if no one's making the laptops.
1: Well, and this brings I think us to a really important point because there there'll be some folks out there who are skeptical of local content requirements, but can admit of certain uh, exceptions. Like, well, okay, all right, if the Department of Defense needs this, maybe we can have Buy America requirements, which we do, right? It's important to point out that the Department of Defense already does have certain Buy America requirements that that are imposed on it by law. Um, there are Buy America requirements in federal procurement generally under the Buy American Act, Buy America Act, which the current administration has recently increased. I think your point is that those things are not sufficient to change an economy-wide problem. Those things can't drive economy-wide behavior. And the Department of Defense has actually pointed this out explicitly um, in their recent supply chain fragility review, um, where they talk about this, where there's no first of all, there's no commercial market for some of the things they need, like you know, precision guided missiles and so on. Um, but more broadly, right, the semiconductors are a really good example. Though they they write very clearly in that report that the migration of semiconductor manufacturing offshore is an economic and national security threat. And that DOD demand is not enough to fix the problem. They need an economy wide solution, and that can only be done through policy in general, not just procurement policy within a given agency, even one as big as the Department of Defense. So if a listener is thinking, well, maybe it makes sense in national security, but not, you know. This interference in the free market generally is not my my jam. Well, it doesn't. You can't separate it out that way. It doesn't work that way. And the first people who will tell you it doesn't work that way <laughs> are the national security experts.
0: Well, and, and I think there's there's a second point that is there as well. Partly that you know, Department of Defense isn't sufficient demand in a lot of cases to to maintain the domestic production. There's there's a related problem which the people will say, okay, well, fine, let's have local content requirements for, you know. Fighter jets or missiles or whatever mm-hmm. else, but what do I care about laptops? Um, and you know, what do I care about basic materials, et cetera? And 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 the reality is that fighter jets need screws, yeah. <laughs> too that yeah. that it is not the case that you can simply identify the high, you know, the most technologically advanced and highest value pieces of the value chain and say, well, we're going to protect those and not worry about the rest because. In fact, if you want to have the capacity to do things, you have to have the capacity up and down the supply chain.
1: Right. And this brings us back to the definition of local content requirements that we talked about at the beginning, which has a lot to do with intermediate goods. Uh, If you're defining a local content requirement as 50% comprised of an end good being 50% comprised of domestically sourced or manufactured intermediate goods, then we're attacking the problem you're identifying, which is that kind of call them dual use, call them whatever you want, goods that a whole bunch of different people need and a whole bunch of different end goods need, whether military or otherwise. Um, and that's that's the right kind of level at which to, to confront the, the problem, yeah.
0: All right, well, let's talk a little bit about this approach versus other approaches because I think, you know, one thing that people hear when or think when they hear local kind of requirements is this sounds like a, a quite heavy handed intervention. Um, you know, aren't there other approaches that are going to sort of accomplish what we need in a more market friendly way? Can't we use tax policy somehow? Can't Mm -hmm. we offer subsidies for particular things, uh, that we need? Can't we, you know, pursue trade policy in a different way? Um, and I, I certainly commend to listeners our, our fine discussion of, of trade policy and, and the use of different tools to uh, to encourage more balanced trade generally. I think the thing that it's, it's really important to recognize about local content requirements is that w- while they are a very blunt instrument in some respects, they are actually in many ways the most market friendly instrument yes um, because they make, they make one rule up front. And within the confines of that rule, really invite the market to solve the problem mm-hmm. and optimize mm-hmm. what to do most efficiently where.
1: Yeah, and, and if your concern is, well, this will harm innovation, I, I, would, I would agree with you it's actually the other way around. This is constraining the, the landscape in a useful way to prompt innovation to happen here. Um, no, I agree with you. And and look, I mean, I agree with you as well. We can and should make judicious use of these other tools. Big supporters of the CHIPS and Science Act, for example, there's a place for direct support of critical domestic industries. There's a place for tariffs uh, and, you know, in under certain circumstances. Um, but this the simplicity and bluntness and directness of a local content
0: requirement, to your point, uh, is a feature, not a bug. And so, what what does it look like then? Are right, we have local content requirements? What happens? What <laughs> what, 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 are, what what do we what do we think we're accomplishing, and 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 at what cost?
1: Well, uh, you, you know the the long term view here is that a a certain amount of guaranteed demand will prompt a uh, I won't say resurrection because U.S. manufacturing isn't dead, but a a, a, a growth in in the sector as people respond to them. I mean, that's how, to your point, that's how the market works. If you know there's demand and that demand is guaranteed to a certain extent, it becomes a lot more viable to take risks, to innovate, to try your hand at trying to make something new in a cost-effective manner. Um, and that's the, that's the goal. Will, that be, uh, will there be a transition on the front end? Sure. Um, but the long-term benefits of that vastly outweigh the short term and you can talk about kind of reasonable ways to ramp up over a period of years this requirement or to give the market like uh, a, a signal that this will come into effect X years from now, uh, which are reasonable and, and can be worked out. Um, but yeah, the, the, the long-term benefits to American uh, supply chain resiliency, as we talked about, to the dynamism of our of our innovation ecosystem vastly
0: outweigh. Kind of the the transition costs in the first few years. I think the transition point is is a really important one because it it's not just pragmatic. You know, you can't do this all at once. It also speaks to, in in some respects, the real benefits, which is the sort of foreseeable and predictable creation of demand. If if mm-hmm. you actually have credibility that this policy is going to be in place for the long run, and you say, look, starting. 3 years from now there's going to be a 10% local content requirement mm-hmm. and over the decade that's going to ramp up to a 50% mm-hmm. local content requirement. Um, that certainly gives a lot of planning time for the the end producers but just as importantly it gives plenty of time for investors to show up and say wow there's yes. going to be demand there's going to be demand for screws yes. and Maybe that's not the thing there's going to be demand for right the whatever you know the reason you don't want a hundred percent local content requirement is because there are some things that would be extremely expensive to do here because there actually are real advantages to doing it somewhere else or and there's
1: certain things you can't source in America, for example, we don't have every mineral in the world here
0: right sure and and so you know it 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 actually embraces the 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 genuine and correct theory of trade, which is that there are absolutely benefits in. Different areas specializing in different things, and and local content requirements allow for that, while still saying and and creating an enormous incentive to identify those elements of the supply chain that do make most sense mm-hmm. to house here, creating that demand as you said, and therefore inducing uh, the investment that is its of itself valuable, and creating employment in generating innovation, uh, and then building that ecosystem for for a an effective supply chain. And no, I
1: agree 100% and just to put some numbers on the negative side of the things you just talked about. Um let's talk about domestic investment for example. Between the 1980s and 2018 there was a 50% decline in net private domestic investment as a percent of GDP. That's the that's the scale of the of the challenge we're talking about. And when you're talking about a, a 50% decline like some of the other negative consequences we talked about earlier start to, to make a lot of sense. Um, you know, almost 5 million manufacturing workers have lost their jobs in, since the 1990s, and now that's a huge loss in employment in these sectors. Um, so what you're identifying as uh, advantages of this approach have also been real deficits of our current approach, which I think you're rightly identifying. But going back to the question of like, a reasonable ramp-up period, the key ingredient to making that work in my mind is is political will because what will happen in the intervening 5 years or 10 years or whatever your time frame is is that all of the special interests that benefit from the current order of, of things will lobby congress and the administration to to change it and if the market thinks that the rules will be changed then then you know that disrupts some of that you know signaling value that we talked about um, so I think the, the political side of this is really important, and it also speaks to one of the other major objections you'll get to this kind of idea. Well, won't special interests all kind of lobby to make, you know, to, to, to benefit from a local content re- requirement regime? Well, no, that, that's what they're doing now. There, there are plenty of special interests that, you know, drove our free trade regime that has done so much damage. Um and they'll continue to try and do that. So I don't buy at all the argument that we are creating more space for special interests. Special interests are kind of running the show now and would probably fight reasonably hard against against a a
0: proposal like this. Well, and and I think, you know, part of the the benefit potentially is that it that this approach creates a countervailing special interest. Our yeah. our friend Sam Hammond at at the Niskanen Center likes to say you know, industry capture is inevitable. The question is, which industries yeah. <laughs> capture? And and I think that gets exactly the point that you're making. That the current system is administered by tens of thousands of pages of free trade agreements themselves written mm-hmm. by, by lobbyists. Yeah. And so there there is no sort of pure state of of nature where we have an international market that that is not going to be governed and dictated by mm-hmm. rules lobbied for by mm-hmm. special interests the question for for policymakers at the end of the day is what do, what do we want the default to be what do we want to put our thumb thumb on the scale for and if having domestic supply chains having a robust ecosystem for manufacturing for investment for innovation is important then something like local content requirements puts puts a thumb on that side of the scale and and actually helps to strengthen special interests who will be saying no we we do need these rules because they help to ensure that we do mm-hmm. in fact have mm-hmm. flourishing domestic supply chains
1: right and and as long as we're talking about friends you'll be happy to know you are in august company because in 1782 Alexander Hamilton said something very very similar i'm going to read this quote for you this is from the continentalist number 5 which is an essay by Hamilton, and he's talking about the importance of vesting Congress with the power to regulate trade, which was a debated matter, whether Congress should be permitted to do that. Um, and he says, there are some who maintain that trade will regulate itself and is not to be benefited by the encouragements or restraints of government. This is one of those wild speculative paradoxes contrary to the uniform practice and sense of the most enlightened nations. And here's the, the point to preserve the balance of trade in favor of a nation ought to be a leading aim of its policy. Now he talks about special interests. The avarice of individuals may frequently find its account in pursuing channels of traffic prejudicial to that balance of trade to which the government may be able to oppose effectual impediments, which is just a fancy way of saying exactly what you said, which is it is in the national interest to pursue certain types of trade situations versus others. Um, It's the proper place of Congress to do that. There will be those who get rich from not doing that, and they'll try and lodge ideological arguments to to support their avarice, to use Hamilton's word. Um, <laughs> the government shouldn't put up with it.
0: And you know, I think, uh, as always, we enjoy pointing to what are the the founding fathers and and the original American economic tradition actually said and were, because of course, for the entire era during which america was growing into the industrial colossus that it became these sorts of policies were vital to the success uh, yes. of the domestic economy and likewise other nations in in their own process of developing robust industry and and in many respects <laughs> taking it from america mm-hmm. in recent years have used exactly this policy as well so there there is in fact a strong empirical track record of this approach accomplishing exactly what it is designed to, with certainly all of the imperfections that any policy will have, but ultimately to the benefit of of nations that that embrace them.
1: Yes, and and also just more more simply, we uh, don't have a lot of time for those who say that these types of proposals are are un American.
0: They're they're clearly not. They are part and parcel of the American tradition from from the beginning. And and speaking of friends, all all the way up to, deba- to today, we should note that Senator Josh Hawley and and Representative Claudia Tenney have the Make It in America to Sell It in America Act, uh, which I believe they introduced back in twenty twenty one, and and takes very much this approach and and provides a great template for uh, how how to pursue legislation along these lines.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and th- their bill is, is is very similar to what we just described. Um, they would authorize. The administration, you know, certain de- departments in an administration to identify these critical goods and then apply a, a, a local content requirement. Um, and look to kind of traditional trade remedies to enforce it when that's not being done. So, if someone's trying to import a good in violation of that rule, well, you have recourse at the ITC or, or, or wherever. Um, so, yeah, it's important to say not only is this idea not original to us. Uh, All the way back to the 1700s, it is also something being talked about and debated by our our friends in,
0: in Congress now. Terrific. Well, speaking of legislation, we've reached the most important part of the program, name that bill. Do you, want, yeah. do you want to kick us off today? Not with, with respect to Senator Hawley and, and Congresswoman Tenney's... It's a pretty good, a pretty good title. Generically you give it to them. and boringly named No, it's bill. a pretty... I'll, I'll, I'll give them that. It's not a bad title. Are you only saying that because yours is not as good?
1: Mine is nowhere near as good. Um, but you know, you know me. I like a descriptive title that tells me what is going on. And their bill says to sell something in America. You have to make it in America. And they just called their bill that. And I respect that. let lets me know what's going on.
0: So you're just going with that?
1: No, so here's some rejected ideas that I worked through. One is the Lift Our Communities and Locations Act, which is the Local Act. That's not really that good. I tried to do something on the Require Act, but the Q the Q is a tough one. I couldn't get there.
0: Require is also, in a sense, what every law does when you think <laughs> about it. Yeah,
1: you know, fair point. Fair point. So for our younger listeners, our Gen Z listeners, here's where I landed. I would give myself a B minus on this one. This is the Bringing America's Supply Chains Expeditiously Domestic Act, which is the based act.
0: That's okay. The supply the,
1: chains has a hyphen, just that's, to be clear. That's the, my the
0: expeditiously feels a little wedged in there. It always is, man. It always is. What do you got? Well, I'm quite pleased with this one. It is the Make It Here Act which is Made in America Keeps Employment, Investment, and Technology. Now, most people would just then use the HERE. Home? You would use just HERE, but not me. I use the HERE as an acronym as well. So the Make It Here Act is the Made in America Keeps Employment, Investment, and Technology at Home to Energize the Real Economy Act. Of 2023.
1: All right. No, you know what? You know what? You know I've been winning this this uh, in the last few pods that we've recorded. This is you you take it, man. That's an A plus. That's an A plus effort.
0: Thank you. I agree. (laughs) And what have we got? What else can readers list? Well, I guess these are listeners, but should they be readers as well? Yes. Should you also
1: wish to read, uh, you can check out on the American Compass website. um, Michael Lind wrote a piece for us called "On Domestic Sourcing," in which he unpacks a lot of these arguments and makes the case for local content requirements. Um, they can also check out the Balancing Act, which is a broad menu of policy options, including this, uh, this and many others for how to rebalance trade and fix some of the problems we've, we've been talking about. Um, and I, I would start there. I would direct listeners there. And if they want to know more about the decline in pasta manufacturing, they should feel free to contact us and I will talk to them at length anytime.
0: And that is fair enough, though I should note that if you send that message to the contact inbox, uh, I will delete it. You'll need to email Chris directly, and I'm <laughs> I'm sure he'll be happy to talk with you further. Uh, that is all we have. We will be back next time on Star Pasta specifically. Until then, this is the American Compass podcast, policy in brief.